The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Friends, our first scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 26. Listen now for the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman asked, said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must go worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This year, in the season of Lent, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is exploring the vocabulary of belief. We are studying words central to our faith, potent words, reassuring words, and a few somewhat intimidating words. We are looking closely at words that religious folk have used for millennia. In the past, these precious words have drawn people deeper into relationship with God. Might they do the same for us? 
should they be tattooed on our hearts. Last Sunday, we considered the word spirit, and we explored its roots in Hebrew as ruach, the animating breath of God. Today, on the second Sunday in Lent, Confirmation Sunday, our attention turns to a word that lives in a state of duress in the contemporary world. Our word for today is truth. To help us consider this much beleaguered term, let us turn our attention to a second scripture lesson for the day, Psalm 15, as rendered by Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. Listen now for God's word to you. God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? How do we get on your guest list? Walk straight, act right, tell the truth. Don't hurt your friend, don't blame your neighbor, despise the despicable. Keep your word even when it costs you. Make an honest living, never take a bribe, live like this. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's word is truth. Is there any concept more vital for the healthy functioning of human society than truth? Verdad, Varheit, Ukveli. Finding truth, embracing truth, living in truth, philosophers argue, ought to be the goal of every life. We should pursue truth, say the world's great thinkers, with all of our energy and for all of our days. For without truth, our lives are shadowy things, empty things. Is it any wonder that religious communities venerate truth, celebrate truth? Clergy encourage the faithful to be true believers, and religious movements lay claim to truth. Some of the truth, all of the truth, the truth that they believe matters most. In general, Humans chase after truth because we know it matters. Without truth, we wander. We pursue illusions and mirages. We get lost. Navigating without truth, without a reliable compass, is, is virtually impossible. Without truth, we make bad decisions. Without truth, human progress stalls. Without truth, trust is broken. Without truth, the bonds that hold communities and friends and families together fray. Truth is mission critical. And that's why we tend to go after truth like, like a dog on a bone. We seek truth in dialogue, truth in diagnosis, truth in analysis, and truth in negotiations. We demand truth from reporters, truth from government officials, Truth from leaders of all sorts, truth from teachers, truth in times of crisis, truth from, from someone, anyone who can disclose the contents of those derailed train cars outside of West Palestine, Ohio. How can we form strategies, build relationships, make good decisions without truth? Without truth, things fall apart. Lives fall apart. It is in your interest, wrote American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, it is in your interest 
and mine and all peoples, however long we have dwelt in lies, to live in truth. During World War II, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, became worried that his closest advisors were sugarcoating bad news. Now, he didn't think that his advisors were, were trying to be dishonest. Instead, Churchill came to suspect that his inner circle was spreading frosting on the truth because they were so eager to see the war turn in a positive direction. Churchill had no patience, though, for their positive, wishful thinking. In leading a nation that was fighting for its survival, he wanted unvarnished truth. Anything less, the prime minister feared, would result in bad decisions. And, and so early in the war, Churchill created a new department in the British government called the Statistical Office. This new team was charged with feeding the prime minister direct, unfiltered statistics about the war. Casualty figures from battles, production numbers about military hardware, and news about supply shortages in villages all across his island nation. Churchill relied on this special unit. He repeatedly told his staff there that he had no need for cheering dreams. Facts, Churchill would say with a snarl, are better than fairy tales. I think that old English bulldog had a point. When faced with life's most difficult challenges, we all scramble to gather relevant truths, even if they are hard truths. How else can we possibly make good decisions? We insist that truth even hard truths be told to us from the halls of Congress, within courts of law, in religious communities, in schools, in our families. To navigate this complicated world, we need truth. We depend on truth. And therein lies the rub. Because, of course, despite our deep dependence on and desire for truth, human beings have a poor track record when it comes to telling the truth and when it comes to living truthfully. In recent years, here at Fifth Avenue Church, we have talked a lot about truth decay in American discourse. We've looked at the ways in which our culture debates its most important issues by repeating partial truths and insidious lies. We've lamented the sway of conspiracy theorists, partisan ideologues, and internet trolls. We've even discussed our own role in forwarding things that are not true or are partially true with a simple social media click. Today, rather than wrestle further with that broad topic, and in honor of these three young people who are joining the church on Confirmation Sunday, I would like to focus on a spiritual question that I think is made especially difficult by all of this cultural truth decay. What does it mean to be true? What does it mean to live an authentic life in a world consumed by dishonesty and a whole lot of meanness? Early in Shakespeare's tragedy, Hamlet, a man named Polonius offers a blessing to his son Laertes. Laertes is soon about to leave for college and Polonius is full of dad wisdom 
about how to manage money, what sort of clothes to wear, and how not to get into bar fights. <laughs> Near the end of the speech, Polonius sums up his fatherly advice with the famous admonition, this above all, to thine own self be true. I wonder, is that good advice? <laughs> what does it mean to be true to thine own self? I, I mean, it sounds solid, I suppose, if Polonius is saying, son, do not abandon principles like honesty, compassion, and loyalty, principles imprinted on you, on yourself, by this family, by this community. If you think someone's self is basically sound, why not counsel that person saying, to thine own self be true? But what if, what if Laertes' character is imperfect, which is to say, normal? <laughs> you certainly wouldn't want to say, to thine own self be true to a bully, or a tyrant, or a cheat, would you? I recently heard someone on a radio program state that the characteristic that she most values when interviewing somebody for a job is authenticity, and I chuckled. I mean, it sounds good, but what happens if you were interviewing an authentic jerk? <laughs> an authentic thief? <laughs> or an authentically lazy person? How important is authenticity, really? <laughs> Chuck Klosterman, best-selling author of a book intriguingly entitled, But What If We Are Wrong? <laughs> argues that our culture is more and more obsessed with authenticity because authenticity is becoming harder and harder to find in social media, on dating apps, and in job interviews. People present themselves in highly curated ways. People have become really good at hiding past mistakes and masking character flaws. We are adept at, at making it seem like our lives are something other than what they really are, namely messy, imperfect things <laughs> that sometimes teeter on the edge of catastrophe. Essayist Gia Tolentino argues that a great deal of what passes for authenticity in this world is ironically an act, a performance. Having figured this out, most of us in painful ways, we now have our guard up. We constantly are assessing others to see if they are authentic. Is this person really full of passion for justice and a deep concern for others? Or is she playing a character cooked up in an influencer lab, a self that she has calculated will garner the most likes? Awash in fakes and frauds, says Klosterman, we have become sort of paranoid. We suspect everyone around us of potentially being some kind of fraud, and we even uh, apply this concern to ourselves. Am I a fake? What does it mean to be authentic? This question plunges us right into the text that we heard this morning from John's Gospel. In the fascinating passage that Reverend Sarah and Ashley read for us, Jesus engages in a conversation with a Samaritan woman. The dialogue between these two souls starts out sort of rough, sort of testy. 
Of course it does. The good book gives us all sorts of reasons that these two people might be spoiling for a fight. First, the woman is a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. They belong to different religions which have different beliefs and not a whole lot of respect for each other. Second, this man, Jesus, and this woman, an unnamed Samaritan, meet at a well. In the ancient world, wells were places where romance could be kindled, but they were also places where women who were simply going about their work for the day could and would receive unwanted attention from strange men. Third, the timing of the woman's visit to the well is unusual. Yes, timing. Most people in the first century drew water from the village well in the morning. They wanted to haul it home for the day's chores before the day got too hot. And as such, early visits to the village well were a communal time, communal gathering. Pleasantries were exchanged, gossip was shared. So why does the Samaritan woman choose to come to the well under the glare of the noon sun? Is there some reason she doesn't want to run into her neighbors? Is she, perhaps, the subject of their gossip? With all this in mind, we shouldn't be surprised when the conversation between the unnamed woman and Jesus quickly turns persnickety. Right off the bat, Jesus sounds like a customer at a 7-Eleven who has forgot his manners. Give me something to drink. <laughs> she raises an eyebrow <laughs> and quickly points out that as members of rival religions, they really shouldn't be talking to each other at all. He responds with an outlandish claim, I could give you living water. She laughs. <laughs> and replies, buddy, where are you gonna get that living water? You don't even have a bucket. <laughs> Eventually though, their conversation warms a bit. It happens when the woman concedes that it, it would be nice to have living water. It would be nice not to have to walk to the well feeling the scorn of her neighbors. It would be nice to be freed from the weight of the water jars, freed of the weight of shame. At this point, the conversation pivots. It hinges on a strange moment. Did you catch, catch that? The, the Samaritan woman expresses a desire for living water. I, I'd like some of that living water. And Jesus says, go and call your husband and come back. The woman replies, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Do you sense the tension here? The moral and social impulses of that time are bubbling through this text and, and perhaps through us. Finally, the truth has come out. Now we get it. Now we know what's really going on here. Now we know who this woman truly is. At the startling revelation, we, we expect a disciple to show up and whisk Jesus out of the, the scene before the local paparazzi start filming a take for Instagram. <laughs> Here in this footage, we see Jesus, a Jew, a man of the cloth, a rabbi with a growing flock, sitting alongside the village well, talking intensely with a Samaritan, a local woman, whose reputation, we need to point out, is sadly less than stellar. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Think I'm exaggerating? 
A few verses after today's text, the, the disciples show up at the village well. They've procured sack lunches from the local deli, and this sort of conversation is exactly what goes through their minds. What the heck is he doing talking to her? All of this, of course, is the gospel's point. Jesus acknowledges the woman's past, but he doesn't dwell on it. He states a truth, quite possibly the truth that has her coming to the well in the heat of the noonday sun, and then he moves on. Moves on to what? Well, curiously, to the delight of all the clergy up here, the two begin to talk theology. <laughs> they begin to talk about life and faith. What is the spirit? What is truth? Where does salvation come from? Their conversation darts this way and that at a furious pace. And then suddenly, without warning, the Samaritan woman confesses. <laughs> she trusts the moment trusts herself, trusts this, this strange rabbi who, who actually takes her seriously. And so she unmasks her heart. She embraces authenticity. She says what she really believes there by the village well, speaking to a stranger who's peddling some kind of magic water. She blurts out, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Without hesitation, Jesus responds, I am he. Existentialist philosophers, people like Soren Kierkegaard, have long argued that authenticity is not about performance. Being authentic is not, as some suggest, the willingness to simply say out loud whatever one is thinking inside. Yes, being authentic means telling the truth, the truth as you see it, but being authentic is not ungoverned and arrogant activity. Authenticity is rooted in compassion and humility, curiosity and courage. Our authentic selves begin to emerge, says Kierkegaard, when we are bold enough and humble enough to engage life's big questions with other people. Is that what being true to yourself means? Is, is authenticity simply what happens to people when they're courageous enough and vulnerable enough to start talking about stuff that matters? I wonder if today's compromise recognize the church in this description. I hope they do. I hope they sense that the church, at its best, is the village well. It's a place where broken and sad and imperfect people gather to talk about stuff that matters. I hope that you sense as we sense the presence of God at this well, the one who welcomes thirsty people, the one who sets aside individuals' shame, who calls us to embrace truth, and who never stops baptizing us with bucket after bucket of living water. Friends, confirmands, go forth from this place to live authentic lives. Be courageous. Be humble. Talk 
about what matters. Seek after truth. The one who sits alongside the well, passing out cups of living water. Amen.
We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.